John 15 is our gospel lesson. We're reading verses 1 through 5. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We give thanks for your word and your truth. And we call upon you this morning, God, and we ask that you restore us, that you make your face to shine upon us, and that you would send out your light and your truth, and that they would lead us to your holy hill, yes, and to the light of your presence. And so guide us today and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Over the weeks of Advent and Christmas tide, we've slowed down to reflect on the Gospel of John. Considering in particular the seven I am statements of Jesus, we saw that those seven I am statements of Jesus are actually matched by another set of seven statements in which Jesus just simply says, I am. And he is there mimicking the words of Exodus 3 where God reveals himself to Moses. And Jesus is claiming that he is the true God revealed in his person. God among us, God come down in the flesh. There are bold moments of disclosure in which Jesus asserts his divine identity and he presses us to consider the import and the magnitude of who he is. But these seven statements are then furthered and they're matched by another seven where Jesus uses the same formula, I am, but then he adds a metaphor to it and so they're slightly different. And it is in the metaphor that Jesus explains something of his purpose and of his mission. We've seen that Jesus says, I am the bread of life in chapter 6. And then in chapter 8, he explains that he is the light of the world. Then in chapter 10, he explains that he is the door or the gate of the sheep. He goes on further in that same chapter to say that he is the good shepherd And then in chapter 11, he explains that he is the resurrection and the life. And in chapter 14, he says in a a group of three that he is the way, the truth, and the light. And it is in these statements that we've encountered the living Jesus. This is the Jesus who is alive today at God's right hand, reigning over the world. And what Jesus is about, what his work is today, is to press us with the single issue of how we respond to him. The question for us is what are we going to do with all of the realities of who Jesus says that he is? Because he, need, he leaves no room for comfortable distance in which we get to follow him from a ways off. He doesn't allow us to limp between opinions. No, he presses us for decision, challenging us to deal with him Because for Jesus, there's two realities. There's light and there's darkness. There's life and there's death. 
There's a gate and there is a fence. There is a shepherd and there are thieves. There is the truth and there is the lie. And Jesus invites us to enter into those ultimate options to say yes to him and to no to all that is not. But we've seen that it's precisely this binary way of thinking that Jesus presses us with that makes us so uncomfortable. We're inhabitants of the 21st century, and we live in a world full of choices and options. When we go to the grocery store, or when we shop for homeowner's insurance, or when we go to purchase a car or a home, we have a proliferation of choices. We get to look at many products and we get to decide which it is that we want to consume. And particularly when it comes to the world of religion and philosophy in the 21st century, we like options not to be nailed down, not to be taught to think in static and binary ways. Our culture is one in which there is nothing that is necessary and everything is possible for us. The world is considered to be a lump of clay that we get to shape and to fashion and to form and assign meaning to. But that's not the world that Jesus reveals to us. He challenges us in all of that. And it, it's to that world and all of its options and all of its indecision and all of its uncertainties and all of its fears that Jesus speaks. And what he says is that he is the true vine. Verse 1 will be the focus of our attention here in chapter 15. And once again, it's a simple metaphor, but yet it is in that simplicity that Jesus reveals a load of meaning. And so what do we see here? And there's three things in particular about the vine that we'll discuss this morning. The first is this, is that the vine focuses God's revelation. When Jesus picks up this metaphor of the vine, there are two things that he's drawing from. Obviously, he lived in the ancient Near Eastern world of Israel, and the landscape of Israel was filled with vines. It was part of the agriculture, the horticulture of the day. And so the vine was an apt, and it was a ready illustration because it was simply all over the place. But a bit of knowledge about the Bible also lets us know that the vine is not just simply a common and familiar image that Jesus could pull from, from the landscape, but rather that the image of the vine is also a deeply biblical one, that we find it used in the Old Testament to refer to God's people, that is to his covenant family, the family of Abraham, the people that God had chosen and singled out for himself that he would bless them and that they would become a blessing to the nations. We find this all throughout the Old Testament in Isaiah 5. You could look in Jeremiah 2 or Ezekiel 19, Hosea 10. That it, throughout the Old Testament, Israel, God's family, the church of that day, was called a vine. That it was life-giving and it was going to spread and grow and bring life to the nations of the earth. It's perhaps most powerfully used, the imagery of this in Psalm 80, which we read just a moment ago. There in verse 8, we learn that God plucked up a vine and then cleared the ground and planted it in Israel. 
that God had promised them, uh, promised them the land and that there they would flourish and they would be nurtured by him. But in the psalm, we learned that there was hardship and there was suffering and the vine was not flourishing. It was not thriving. And so three times there's a plea for God to restore his church, for God to renew them, to make his face to shine upon them, to bring salvation. The request is that God would have regard for this vine. And towards the end of the psalm, there's an important turn. And if you look there with me, you'll find this helpful in verse 17. And the request is this. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we shall call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And the request three times repeated finds its climax here where the renewal of the church is being drawn into one central focus, this son of man whom God has made strong. This was a reference to the promised heir of David who would come and sit upon his throne. And Jesus, when he says, I am the vine, he is drawing on this language, and he is claiming that he is this one, this son of man who was promised, this son of man in whom salvation is focused, who would bring blessing. And it wasn't just simply to that promised land, but the land was always on the way to something else, that the vine was to be a blessing to all the ends of the earth. And so Jesus, when he uses this common agricultural metaphor, is making a provocative and profound statement that he is at the center of all of God's plan and all of God's purpose. That he is the son of man made strong who's bringing salvation now to all the ends of the earth. That he is the center of what God is doing in the world. That he is the center of God's revelation. And friends, as we learn about this vine and as we appreciate what Jesus is saying here, that there is a challenge for the church. And the challenge for us is simple, that at the very center of our life, the very center of our life together that we share in common, that the focus must always be found here in what God reveals about the vine. That the very center of our life has to be found in Jesus. And that may sound simplistic, but it's incredibly difficult for the church to maintain that simple task because we've seen all kinds of ways through the Gospel of John in which people mishandle Jesus, people who have agendas for him, who want him to be a certain thing, and he refuses to cooperate with that agenda. We've seen that that happens both in the secular world and in the religious world. And that Jesus is constantly defying those expectations. Because at the focus of the church, we can't become overly preoccupied with the good things that God even commands us to do. That those can take up central places in the life of the church and they can become enormous distractions. We can't drift into a focus upon mission and to a focus upon 
what God would call us to do in planting churches domestically and internationally. Because this can take up such a life that it displaces Jesus from the center. We cannot drift into important things talking about spiritual techniques and things that God wants us to do to learn to read and to meditate. We can't do so in a way that is isolated from Jesus. We can't enter into the world of politics and drift in that direction, focusing upon this in such a way that displaces Jesus. We can't do this with doctrine and with all of our knowledge of history and learning. All of these things only find their proper place and perspective when they flow from the center of the church's life, and that is the church's communion with her living Lord Jesus, that he is the focus of all of God's plan and all of God's purpose. And the challenge for us is to keep him central, not an idea, not a proposition, but the living Lord who came and laid down his life for the sake of the church and who governs that church and rules over that church today, that he is central, that he must be the focus, and everything then falls under him. All the good things that he commands us to do, but we don't let those things take up a life in and of themselves. And so this is the first thing that happens in the vine is we find the focus of God's revelation being Jesus Christ. Now, second, the vine also clarifies our situation. If you follow into verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is here that we find the challenge of Jesus. And what he is saying is that we are branches and as branches, we are not independent. That we can't have life with God on our own that we can't have life with God on our own terms, that we're not autonomous, that the branches thrive and they live and bear fruit only as a result of the vine supplying them with nutrients. And so Jesus draws the attention in upon himself. He draws the source in upon himself, and he says that we only thrive and have life as we draw from him, that everything we have Everything we have in salvation, the forgiveness of sins, everything we have in the daily supply of grace is given in him. Everything we will have in the inheritance of the world to come is given in him. That our situation is one of utter dependence, that we can do nothing apart from him. And this clarifies our situation and it bruises the human ego. It says something to our pride that oftentimes we struggle to get over, that we can do nothing, that grace that comes through Jesus Christ, the revelation of this Son of Man made strong, that he supplies every one of our needs, that we draft completely, wholly, and exclusively off of him. Now, I was reminded of this as a child, A.G. Cox Middle School, fifth grade, 
the politics of the playground were defined by two figures. The first figure's name was Derek Wooten. He was a young African-American guy who had matured very early, and he was strong. He was cocky and confident and had every reason to be. The other figure had perhaps um, was still in the fifth grade, but perhaps should have been in the eighth. He was over six feet tall, and his name was Robbie Ames. And at A.G. Cox Middle School, every spring we had a kickball tournament. And it was at that kickball tournament that the homerooms competed against one another. My homeroom was not spectacularly talented that year, but we won the championship. And in the championship game, we had defeated Robbie Ames' team. Robbie had had a particularly bad day, and he was not particularly happy about it. We weren't being overly obnoxious about the victory, but as we walked back to the school, there was a series of fields that we had to cross, and so our teammates were joking and celebrating the victory. And somehow, Robbie heard us laughing and became annoyed, and I became the object of his annoyance. I still don't know how, out of all the crowd, I became the focus. But threats and taunts began to flow. And I was extremely nervous for the rest of the day because Robbie was not one to be trifled with. He felt like he was two feet taller than me. And so the rest of the day, I changed the patterns of going back and forth to class. I didn't want to run into Robbie anywhere in the hall. I knew that he was annoyed at me, and he was threatening me that on the way to the bus that I was going to meet my maker. I was fairly confident that that was going to happen. And uh, it was at that point that Derek Wooten, the other major figure in the playground scene, came to my aid. He was in my home room, and he said, I heard that Robbie is threatening you. And I said, yes, he is. And he says, will you walk with me to the bus? And so what went from perhaps the scariest afternoon uh, in my life went to one of the most confident because after sixth period, I walked with Derek Wooten straight to bus 181 and loaded myself on very comfortably. And it was all because I simply knew that I was drafting off the protection and care of someone else. He had a reputation, and it was a reputation that he could uphold. And I was safe, I was secure, because I was connected and thriving on the life of Derek Wooten. And friends, this is the situation of the church but it takes us getting to that place of utter helplessness, of recognizing that we have no resources in and of ourselves, that we're completely outmatched, that sin and judgment overwhelm us, and that this life will crush us. But yet we do have one, there is a vine who gives us nutrients, who provides us everything we need, and that we can draft fully and wholly and exclusively off of that vine, and we find the grace that is necessary, the grace that forgives sins, the grace that frees us from the power and control of sin, the grace that promises the renewed life. And so in clarifying our situation, the vine announces our dependence and in announcing our dependence, the vine supplies us with everything that we need. And finally, this metaphor of the vine also highlights our challenge. You notice that Jesus does something unique in the statement. He says, I am the true vine. And then he adds something about the Father. And my Father is the vine dresser. He's explaining that along with this vine that there's also a gardener. 
that is the farmer who tends and who keeps this vine. And his work is then defined in the next series of verses as one who prunes, one who takes away what is dead, but one more primarily who cuts back what has been fruitful so that it would be more fruitful. It's that counterintuitive logic that comes with horticulture. And that the gardener does that with his good and wise intentions. And yet, as it's experienced, we often doubt it and question it. Last spring, we had a hedge in the back of our home that was overgrowing. And so I hired a landscaping company to come in and assist me with the hedge. It was crowding out other trees and bushes, and actually at the, towards the bottom of the hedge, it was not thriving with life properly, that the bushes were actually going to kill themselves. And so the landscaper explained to me the severity of the situation and that the trees, the bushes, must be cut back to such a large degree that I was going to be shocked. And I returned home one day after he had been working, and I was shocked. There was nothing left. I finally discovered that I had neighbors who lived behind me. I had not seen their homes <laughs> ever because of the monstrosity of these bushes. And there was everything laid bare. It looked ugly. Things had been cut sharp and pointy, and here were these bushes, and I was thinking, this will never grow back. Melissa looked at me and said, will it ever look the same? And it was a great question. I couldn't say no. One of the neighbors was complaining about how I destroyed his privacy. But friends, of course, with Florida heat and Florida water, everything grows. <laughs> and the hedge is filled in, and it's filled in in a way which is more healthy and vitalized. The plants around it are thriving. Everything is growing. And it was the wisdom of the landscaper, the one who knew and had understanding of how it all worked and that this cutting back would lead to something good. And our challenge in the midst of the pruning of the one who dresses the vines is to trust him because it often is painful and it looks like those bushes, sharp and pointy, angular, empty and barren. And the challenge for the Christian is to trust the vine dresser, that because they're connected to the life of the vine, that even when it feels painful and when it is difficult and God in our life circumstances even sometimes uses difficult and hard things and even evil things, that he's using it according to wise and good purposes. And he does it so that fruit would be born. And the challenge for us in the midst of that pruning is to trust that wise and that good hand. And can we trust him? And you ask, but why? Why in the midst of all the difficulty? Why in the midst of all the chaos when it doesn't seem to exactly make sense, when I can't even discern what God's purposes are? And that is frequently where we are. The reason that we trust is because we are connected to the vine. And the vine comes and gives his life for us, lays down his life on our behalf, that he's raised and that we're united to him, and that because that sap courses through us, 
in the power of the Spirit, and because we know that God is for us, that all these other things in life must work together for our good. They may not be good in and of themselves, but God has the power and God has the plan and God has the purposes that can direct all of these things to bring forth the fruit that he wants in our lives. And so the challenge of the vine is to trust the vine dresser. As we venture into this next year, we all venture into unknowns. All of our lives are filled with uncertainty every day and every year. But this is the one thing that is certain, is that the center of God's purposes and plans have been revealed in Jesus that he is the vine, the son of man who has been made strong, who has brought salvation to all the ends of the earth. And that our life is had in depending upon him and being nourished by him and being a dependent branch. And that the vine dresser, the divine gardener, cares and tends to us that he has wisdom that goes beyond our knowledge and our understanding, and that he cares for us, and that he even prunes in order to bring forth a fruit that we can't imagine and that we can't know. Friends, this is the vine, Jesus, that you participate in, that you share in by faith. And so look to him in faith and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gift of the vine, Jesus Christ who has come, and that in him is our life, the forgiveness of sins, the freedom from the power and control of sin, the gift of the world to come. All of our inheritance is a result of our participation in him by faith. And we ask that you would help us as we trust you, the vine dresser, in all the circumstances of life, all the difficulties that we face, May we know that you're actively at work and grant us eyes to even discern your great purposes and may you bear your fruit in us. Grant us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.